Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, along with me this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, you know how much I love watching you work, but I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilder to frame for it. I'm swamped. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1987 fantasy adventure, The Princess Bride, starring Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, and Mandy Patinkin. Directed by Rob Reiner, this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 38 minutes. This movie received one Oscar nomination for Best Music Original Song, Storybook Love by Willie DeVille. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. Embark on a fun-filled adventure that unlocks imaginations and inspires dreams. A wondrous tale of wit and whimsy, The Princess Bride will transport you to a magical land where fantasy reigns supreme and kings and queens of all ages will want to return again and again. Long ago and far away, there lived the beautiful Buttercup, Robin Wright, and her one true love, Wesley, Carrie Elwes. With a final kiss goodbye and a vow that he will one day return, Wesley leaves to seek his fortune. But when news arrives that he's been lost at sea, an evil prince seizes the opportunity to arrange his own betrothal to Buttercup. Things certainly do look bleak for the poor, unwilling bride-to-be, but before she can say, I do... The courageous Wesley triumphantly returns to battle the wizards, warriors, pirates, poisons, giants, and giant egos to come to her rescue. Sparkling with fun, adventure, and romance, and featuring endearing characters played by Peter Falk, Billy Crystal, Mandy Patinkin, and more, The Princess Bride casts an unforgettable spell that will live in your heart happily ever after. The Princess Bride. Bravo, Jason. Bill, that's a fun read. That was a great, great synopsis on the back of that VHS box. And speaking of which, there were two versions. And I'm going to share a little bit of the first version I had transcribed. It is not as good. Let me just preface it by saying that. I am not going to read the entire thing. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Okay, ready? Yeah, let's hear the difference. Well, it's a bent fairy tale, complete with all the fencing, fighting, chases, escapes, and silly accents you'd expect. Blonde Buttercup loves Wesley, a poor stable boy. But when he's captured by pirates, she's chosen by evil Prince Humperdinck to be his princess bride. Along the way, she gets kidnapped, he gets killed. But it all ends up okay. That was... Yeah, wow. That was just a portion of it. The rest isn't much better. Above all, it's incorrect. <laughs> it's not right. In the blurb, it says, along the way, she gets kidnapped, he gets killed. Referring to Humperdinck, that, because it says, she's chosen by evil prince Humperdinck to be his prince's bride. Along the way, she gets kidnapped, he gets killed. Which is, spoiler alert, I'm glad you already provided that for our listeners. Humperdinck does not get killed. Someone lost the job over that one. It's really funny. Anyway, the the original blurb, the synopsis that I had read was much better, and I loved reading it. It's colorful. It really describes the wondrous nature of this film. And 
I had a backup quote also, by the way, which I'm just going to read real quick here for you because I love this line. I do not envy the headache you will have when you awake, but for now, rest well and dream of large women. Oh, yes. <laughs> I just... It takes out Fezzik. Oh, there's only 100,000 quotes to choose from in this amazing romantic comedy fantasy adventure. Oh, yeah. I couldn't believe how short it was. Total running time. You said it. One hour and 38 minutes. Literally an hour and 20 minutes of that movie is quotable. Oh, yeah. It's stunning. I was really surprised when I saw that TRT, Total Running Time, because I was expecting this to be closer to two hours. I didn't think it was maybe a full two hours, but I was thinking at least maybe an hour 45. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I guess it's only an hour 38. It's close, but regardless, yeah, I was really surprised. And it's amazing how much is in this movie in just that hour and 38 minutes. Yes. It packs a plenty. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, yeah, we did the what's in the box, two different versions. One was good. (laughs) One sucked. So let's, (laughs) So let's move on to earliest memories. What are some of our earliest memories of The Princess Bride? Oh, man. This is just a real pleasure to do this movie. I mean, this is an actual national treasure, in my opinion. I did not see this in the theaters, as I recall. Then once upon a time, it was a cable watch. And then it was a cable watch upon cable watch happily ever after. Where do I start with my early memories? I know this movie like the back of my hand. I've seen it so many times. But going back to the beginning, going into the Wayback Machine, I was a fantasy adventure fan as a kid, as I've mentioned ad nauseum on this very podcast. And as far as I can recall, I approached this knowing that it had a quote unquote romantic glow about it, that it wasn't hardcore medieval fantasy adventure that I was sort of attracted to, like an Excalibur or a Lord of the Rings type of genre film. So this film, I mean, I became aware, had a lot of different levels and was meant to be consumed in a certain way. Long story short, when I got it, I got it. The story was infectious in the best possible way, in a very innocent, romantic way. I did get swept away and immersed in the fantasy of it all, laughing along the entire way. My favorite memory has always been the character of Inigo Montoya. That's my my personal experience. The great Mandy Patinkin portraying Inigo Montoya. Hello, you killed my father. Prepare to die. What else can you say? I mean, he was the Han Solo type, the swashbuckler, uh, then, you know, joined by his partner, Fezzik, the Chewbacca type. We have Inigo's quest for vengeance upon the six-fingered man, played by Christopher Guest. Christopher Guest playing the role of Count Tyrone Rugen. And for some reason, Bill, Here's speaking of earliest memories. I have no memory of his actual character name. Oh, I don't either. And it is mentioned throughout the film because now I was paying attention. But as a child, I never caught his name. I always knew Christopher Guest's character as the six fingered man. I'm exactly there with you. I had no idea either. I didn't know he had an actual name. And it's Count Tyrone Rugen. Again, it is mentioned in the film. And I'm like, how the hell did I miss this? And it's funny, too. I didn't even know what the first name was. I just knew Count Rugen. Tyrone is mentioned once, but Rugen is mentioned at like three or four times maybe throughout. And it's just kind of either swallowed a little bit or it's in passing dialogue. Anyway, it goes by really quick and I never caught it as a kid. So that was interesting to me. But back to Inigo and Mandy Patinkin, love his accent. Of course, his his character's talent with a sword, his fencing prowess, 
you know, he just has great line ratings. And with the character, I always just loved, you know, how we talked about in Flash Gordon, how Prince Baron makes the turn and becomes friends with Flash and how we both really enjoyed that. You know, I always saw Anigo as a good guy anyway, or, you know, kind of this uh, thief or with a heart of gold, sort of a criminal with a heart of gold. But I always saw him as a good guy and the way Mandy Patinkin plays him is really endearing. But then the fact that he tries to or attempts to kill the uh, the man in black, a.k.a. Wesley, but then realizes he needs his help and they become friends and they team up to take down Prince Humperbank. I love the way his character makes that turn and, and becomes a real hero in this. I always remember seeing Robin Wright for the first time as Buttercup. I mean, that has to be one of my earliest memories because she is quite breathtaking. She's got to be, what, 20 years old, I think, at this point, 20, 21 Maybe, years yeah. old. And just a real true vision. The truest vision of a princess is in like kind of stereotypical way, but in a great way. She's just purely naturally beautiful. And then you have Carrie Elwes, her counterpart here, perfectly cast as the hero. And I remember seeing him as Wesley who is almost as equally beautiful. <laughs> you know, they're just this gorgeous couple. Other early memories, uh, many surround the quotes. This is one of the most quotable films of all times. So for me, early memories, like things when I think about, or quotes I think about when I think about The Princess Bride, I think of, boo, boo, bow down to her if you want, bow to her, or Wallace Shawn's Inconceivable and Andre the Giants. Anybody want a peanut? Or as you wish. And of course, marriage. I mean, yes. oh my God. Have fun storming the castle. You can go down the list. I'm not going to, because I know our listeners are fans of this movie. They know the quotes. They know how they're supposed to be delivered. And only the flawless cast in this movie could deliver them correctly. Now, again, I could name a hundred other memories because I, as I mentioned, know this film well. Inevitably, I would be describing every scene in this movie, and I'll save some of my favorite scenes for a later segment. Otherwise, I have to say a memory that's always stuck with me is Mark Knopfler's score, film score, the music, the main theme, storybook, love, which you mentioned was nominated for an, uh, an Oscar. It's wonderful. It has that fantasy element, kind of a dreamlike element to it, uh, very sweet. It's a wonderful score. And I'll say this lastly regarding my earliest memories is the wonderful feeling that this movie always provided me as a young man and still to this day. But it drew this feeling out of me that was derived from listening to a, a good story. And of course, it helps if Peter Falk is reading it. I mean, he's great. He's so endearing. Having that story come alive in your mind in the most romantic and imaginative way, even like the bad parts, which, which have to exist in this type of story, really aren't that bad. This movie ultimately always made me want to read, to tell stories, but more importantly, just to laugh and love, man. So that's it for me. What are your earliest memories of The Princess Bride from 1987? Wow. Um, yeah. So for me, I don't remember that much about the movie when it came out. Yeah. But I have to say this movie was definitely a huge influence on me, but not in the sense of something I always talk about when I talk about movies that influence me and let me explain mm -hmm. this so the first time i saw this what happened was my mom came home from the video store and she's like oh i rented some movies 
And I was all excited. I was like, cool, movies. What what did you rent? And she tells me The Princess Bride. And I swear to you, I was just like the grandson in the movie where I was like, oh, really? Right. Princess yeah. Bride? Uh, I get it. I totally get it. I have the I had the same reaction when I was younger. It's just like, ah, that doesn't grab me. No. My mom goes, well, I'll just watch it without you. And I thought to myself, no, I want to watch it. So, okay, just put it in. And even just watching it and watching the grandson, I was the same person, except probably like six years older. Right. Where at the relatable. end of the movie, this movie was amazing. I never would have rented it. I'm so glad my mom rented it. And we sat and watched it. Who knows when I would have ever eventually got around to watching this movie. And it really opened my eyes to give movies a chance. Give every genre a chance. Give every kind of films a chance. Bad movies, good movies, foreign movies, documentaries, westerns, whatever. Give them a chance. And this was the movie that really opened my eyes to giving movies a chance. And I'm so glad that. It was an eye opener. I was like, you know, it was very genre specific at that point. It was, you know, action, the sci fi. Yeah, I wasn't doing the romance stuff or even Westerns or any of that kind of stuff. And this was the movie that said, hey, there's a lot more out there. You got to check it out. And it just blew me away. It just blew me away. And it, it was just hilarious, too, that there was a character in that movie that was exactly like me. That was, I don't want to see this. Why am I watching this? Wow, I'm really getting into this. Man, it really sucks. This movie's over. I want to watch yeah, it again. Completely. And that's what it did to me. So when I think back, I can't believe what an influence it was on me. Just the fact that it just opened myself up to there's a lot more out there that you need to watch. Stop watching the same movies over and over again. Start watching things you have not seen before. Catch up on your film library. And this is the one that did it for me. So that is my earliest memory of the film. And a good one at that. Wow. Really well said, man. I, I totally agree. It is interesting as a young man, just how relatable the Fred Savage character, just uh, known as the grandson in this film mm-hmm. uh, is so relatable. Yeah. That's how we were as kids. You know, it's just like, no, give me the pure action fantasy adventure. Don't, I don't need the fluff. Right. Right. The romance and the kissing, just like he's just so annoyed by the kissing. It's just like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't want to hear. I don't want. No, let's not hold on that. Let's not dwell on that or get into that. I want to get to the action and the the scary parts or the thrill, the thrills. Mm -hmm. So good stuff, man. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a movie by its title. That's basically that's basically what you got out of this one. That's for sure. Uh, Yeah. So let's uh, initial thoughts. What are some initial thoughts about The Princess Bride? Well, my initial thought is if you don't like this movie, you don't have a soul. There you go. This movie, what's not to like? Uh, We'd mentioned the running time, first of all. Beautiful. That they accomplished this. Rob Reiner, William Goldman, everybody involved did this in an hour and 38 minutes. Still blows my mind. We had mentioned Fred Savage playing the grandson in this uh, because the film starts off with He's at home sick and his grandfather is coming to visit and his grandfather's given him a gift because he is sick. He's like, yeah, you're sick. Here's a present for you. And he opens the present and it's this book entitled The Princess Bride. And Fred Savage is not too excited about you know, having story time at this point. But I love the fact that he's wearing a Bears jersey in the Midwest, I assume, out like a Chicago suburb. 
Yeah, another Chicago movie. Jesus yeah, Christ. I know, right? He's wearing number 34, good old Walter Payton. So I'm like, yeah, I like this kid. Got a little clip, you know, Cubs flag on the wall, all about it. Another initial thought, man, the fairy tale names. We got Buttercup, Fezzik, Prince Humperdinck, the Dread Pirate Roberts, the Cliffs of Insanity, the Pit of Despair, the Machine. I was going to say you can't make it up, you, but William Goldman did make it up and it's brilliant. I don't know who's prettier, Carrie Elway's or Robin Wright. It's amazing. They're just beautiful people. I, I know I'm being superficial here and talking cosmetics, but they're they're That's gorgeous. Okay. They were perfectly cast in these roles. I love the fact that we have this character of Fezzik, who I mentioned is sort of the Chewbacca type. He's Fezzik is played by the wonderful Andre the Giant, like seven foot seven. How tall is Andre the Giant? Four, seven six. A true giant, but he is just exudes such warmth in this movie. I love that in the first scene where we're introduced to Vicini, Fezzik, and Inigo, and they're on the side of the road, and we learn quickly that they're uh, ne'er dwellers and they're going to kidnap the beautiful Buttercup. Fezzik grabs her off the horse. He grabs her by the neck, and you see just how gigantic his hand is. Oh, yeah. And he does a little Vulcan neck pinch, which I, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> and renders her unconscious, uh, unconscious. So Andre the Giant, shouts out to him. He's great in it. That's just an initial thought. If uh, you get the chance, I still haven't seen the documentary from 2018, which is entitled Andre the Giant, but I heard that it's great. Rest in peace, Andre. Uh, he had passed in 1993. Back to Fezzik, I just love, again, I can't get over like how huge he is. And you can see when you're really paying attention, how like in the scene when he's basically wrestling with, at this point, we know Wesley as the man in black, even though we know Wesley, but Fezzik is wrestling with him. But he handles this rock when Fezzik is holding the rocks in that scene, how he's palming them and picking them up and just kind of tossing them around like they're nothing. And granted, they're probably just styrofoam rocks regardless. But I'm sure that's pretty much how he could handle those stones. You know, anyway, he's just palming them like basketballs. And the way he's kind of carrying Wesley around like a rag doll. Uh, we'll get into a little bit of the trivia regarding what Andre the Giant was going through. And he had some stunt doubles as well for some of that stuff. Major but, health issues of that. Yeah, point. yeah, unfortunately. Um, I recognize as an initial thought that this has a little bit of a Mel Brooks feel at times. You know, kind of that spoof feel a little bit. Uh, there's sight gag here and there, which I really appreciated. Also, I learned that in my research, uh, because I, I'm, I was always fascinated by the Iocane powder, and I never bothered to look into that before, but I guess it is fictional. Yes. Just so you know. Uh, <laughs> Thank goodness. I'm watching this thinking today going, man, I love when they're in the fire swamp, because all I could think of was the moon planet of Arborea from Flash Gordon. Yes, there are some similarities, that's for sure. <laughs> right. And it, speaking of the fire swamp, here's something I realized. I'm watching it today going, when Wesley has to kill or feels he needs to kill the R-O-U-S, the rodent of unusual size, after he's fought it and rolled around on the swamp ground and the R-O-U-S succumbs to one of the uh, spouts of flame that shoots up from the ground. I always feel bad. I kind of feel bad for that R.O.U.S. I, I feel do you bit, really? I do. I don't know. It's kind of nasty. Bit him in the shoulder. Oh, he's trying to kill Wesley. Yeah. I'm totally trying to kill him. But 
I don't know. When Wesley kills him, I, I'm just kind of like, oh, I feel bad for the guy. I don't know. Anyway, also maybe, at the end, go ahead. No, maybe because he does kind of poke him a couple. He should have just done he the death him like blow in the first one. Yeah, like, he should have yeah. did the death blow in the first one. Yeah, I just a little sympathy for the the creatures, the animal creatures in this film. Uh, I also thought, here's an initial thought. To the pain sounds like a game I don't want to play. No. At the end of the film when well, thank you. Prince Humperdinck charges into the room and challenges Wesley to a duel. He says, to the death. And Wesley says, no, to the pain. And breaks this whole thing down about how what to the pain means. And it's pretty awful. So I'm going to round out my initial thoughts with the great William Goldman, because we were prepping to do this movie. And I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that this was based on a book. And then, of course, you hear and or see the name William Goldman. And he is respected. He is revered as one of our great screenwriters and novelist storytellers, and rightfully so. Then it's just wonderful to do a little bit of a deep dive on what this book is, because I had never read the book. I I only know this movie. And so William Goldman had written a book in 1973, the fantasy romance novel entitled The Princess Bride, colon, S. Morgenstern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, The Good Parts version. So I know you'll appreciate this, Bill, as a writer, and I appreciate this as a writer, just the creative aspect of this, because when we watch the movie, we know that there's a book within the movie, right? Correct. And there is basically what is called the framing story. So we have the grandson being read this book by his grandfather, and it cuts to that scenario throughout the movie. And then we are led into the actual fantasy adventure as the story as folds as the grandfather's reading the book. Well, the book that William Goldman wrote in 1973, there's a whole story within the book, which is, try to follow me here, it is what you see in the movie. It's pretty close. There are differences, but in the book, William Goldman, he's writing about himself, and he came up with this whole story about, and it's completely fictional. He came up with this whole story that there was a great fantasy novel written by this guy named S. Morgenstern that his his father had read to him and he was a fan of. And now he was going to share this book by S. Morgenstern with his son, passing it down generation to generation. So he gives it, and this is all in the book. He gives it to his son. His son doesn't get past chapter one because he gets bored. And he's like, wait a minute. I love this book. My father shared it with me. There's, there's fantasy, all these adventure, all these great things about it. So attractive and wonderful and engaging. Why doesn't my son like it? And then he actually reads the book cover to cover and realizes that his father had cut out a lot of the the BS, kind of like a lot of the boring stuff, read him the good parts. And so he decided then to go back and kind of do the abridged version for his son and read it to him, skipping to the good parts. Oh, okay. So all that that I just told you, that's all in the book and it's all made up. That didn't happen in William Goldman's life or anything. Like he just created this whole 
backstory, sort of, but it's in the book. It's part of the story, if that makes sense. Crazy sense, but it makes sense. So in the book, again, he talks about, and it's like in the notes. This is why I really want the book, and I want to read it. I know. It's like there's a, he created an entire world outside of the actual story of The Prince's Bride. And that's why it's called S. Morgan Stern's classic tale for true love and high adventure, the good parts version. And it's in the title. It also says in a abrid- the abridged version by William Goldman. He made it all up. It's crazy. So then in the book, he's telling his son the good parts from the story and then tells the story of the Prince's Bride, of course. And that's what we see in the movie, too. Anyway, I just wanted to break that down because I, I think it's so creative and so smart. And people down the, the line then wanted to know more about, wait, so is there an unabridged version of this then? Right. That's the first thing you would that think That S. Morgenstern wrote, but there is no S. Morgenstern. He made it all up. Yeah. So where's, and then they kind of, in the notes, allude to, there's clues as to, oh yeah, there is more to this and it has yet to be released but it was never released, but it just, people have always wanted more. It's just, it's just really smart. So William Goldman, one of our great screenwriters. And I just want to say uh, a few of the things that he's written. These are just really small movies called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Stepford Wives, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, a screenplay by William Goldman for A Bridge Too Far. Obviously he wrote The Princess Bride, Misery, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Year of the Comet, Chaplin, Maverick, The Chamber, Ghost in the Darkness, just to name a few, William Goldman, ladies and gentlemen. So to round out my initial thoughts, I wanted to give him a shout out. Well said. Yeah, because I think one of the cool things about the movie, too, is, you know, we have that opening scene with the grandfather and the grandson, and you get so locked into the movie. I forget every time, like, oh, yeah. That's how the scene opened up. This is a grandfather reading a book to his grandson and you forget it almost snaps you out of every time. You're like, whoa, whoa, oh yeah, that's right. There is a story within the story and uh, just, yeah, kudos to that. That's just amazing writing. Another initial thoughts I had funny looking back at this the first time I saw it. And you kind of mentioned this too. I didn't know most of that cast at all. The ones that I did know were Andre the Giant, because as a kid, I was a wrestling fan and knew who Andre the Giant was. Right. Fred Savage, because by the time I saw it, Wonder Years had already started. So I knew who he was. And Billy Crystal. I had no idea who any of these other actors. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. No idea who they were. So that was kind of funny. That was the, the three people I was connecting through the movie. And then after this came out, I, I always wanted to see what any of these actors are doing just because I just love this movie so much. The director, Rob Reiner, what a great run he had. Oh, yeah. 80s through the 90s. This is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men. Seven in a row. Not too shabby. I mean, most directors would kill to do at least three of those. Yeah. He did seven like that. Yeah, those are all timers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So just, you know, shout out to him. That was just amazing. Yeah, I look forward to doing a couple of those on our on our podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they will all be future podcast episodes for sure. You know, we talk about the the quotes all the time. This is kind of funny because I saw this. As you wish is said seven times in the movie, four by Wesley and three by the grandfather. Inconceivable is said five times. 
and then the line of my name is Inigo Montoya. I thought it was actually said more. It was only said six times. I thought for sure that was like, oh, that's got to be the most. But yeah, only six times throughout the movie. Huh. That's great. I love it. I love it. Um, this I kind of found funny watching this. Um, the scene when Fezzik and the man in black, Wesley, are wrestling. And Fezzik says, why do you wear a mask? Were you burned by acid? <laughs> right. Or something like that? And yeah. he replies, oh, no, it's just, some, it's just that they're terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future. <laughs> Wow. That's, I didn't think about it, but the way you just said it now, I see what you're saying. Yeah. A little foreshadowing. Yes. A little prophecy right there. Mask wearing. My goodness. But none of us looked as good as Carrie Ellis. Ellis. Yes. Um, I'll be honest too, because like I said, I didn't know who any of these actors were going in. I was totally fooled the first time. I had no idea. It was Wesley again as the Dread Pirate Roberts. It's so obvious now watching him. Like, I'm like, you can totally see it's the same guy. But back then, because I didn't know who he was, I didn't catch on. Oh, really? Yeah. That totally totally fooled me. I had no idea it was him. The mustache and the mask. Yeah. I mean, we make fun of, you know, Superman. Clark Kent, all he does is wear glasses. How can you not tell the difference? Well, yep, I got burned with this one. No idea. So a mustache and a a black mask. I love it. That's great. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit to it. I, I hey, didn't catch it. it. I, I was just as surprised as everyone else. Yep, when he's rolling down the hill and he says, as you wish. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it's Wesley. Yeah. Oh well. Or or Westley. Westley, yes. Which is something I discovered as what like speaking of names, like I was talking about uh, Count Tyrone Rugen, Christopher Guest's character. I didn't realize that the spelling or uh, for some reason until now that I was just thought it was Wesley. That there was no T in Wesley, even though it is pronounced the T, I think is pretty much yeah. silent. It's still, I was just like, oh, it's like Wesley with a T. Hmm. That got me too. I always, that's why I was, I'll just keep saying Man in Black or the Dread Pirate Roberts. Oh, it's so great. Because I know it just keeps screwing up Wesley. Wesley. So that, yeah, that was some of my initial thoughts. All right, so let's uh, move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments? from the movie without rehashing the whole movie, if we can possibly do that. Oh, wow. This will be a tough task, but we are going to attempt it. Okay. I'm going to start with a a moment. Okay. That's all right. And it's going right to Fred Savage once again, playing the grandson. We have the great Peter Falk, a.k.a. Columbo, a.k.a. the grandfather in this movie, tending to his sick grandson and reading him this wonderful story. And as Bill had mentioned, the grandson chimes in from time to time. So we have his voiceover pop in while we're, we're becoming immersed and engaged in the actual fantasy adventure following the romance of Wesley and Buttercup. And then you hear Fred Savage's voice kind of chime in from time to time like, oh, wait, they're kissing? No, you know, kind of like, no, I don't want to hear that. And then just as a young boy would, this is one of my favorite moments is you hear Pierre Fox narration as he's basically, he's reading the book, but we're watching the images of Wesley and Buttercup's uh, romance develop. And they're on this farm and they are going to be together now because they've fallen in love. But before they marry, Wesley decides to go abroad basically to make some money to be able to afford quality life with her. And you hear Peter Fox say, 
this and that uh, then he went to sea and uh, succumbed to pirates. His life was at risk by these pirates on the sea that he could be attacked by pirates. And you hear Fred Savage as the grandson chime in with his voiceover saying, oh, murdered by pirates is good. (laughs) That's what he wants to hear. That gets him excited. That's the kind of story he wants to hear. I I just thought that's a funny moment. But uh, after that, man, I can get into, uh, I mean, there's a lot of moments, but I can just go right to my first favorite scene. Go ahead. And that is Inigo Montoya and Wesley, or I should say the man in blacks, duel atop the cliffs of insanity. Ding. Hell yeah. Also known as the chatty duelists. Oh yeah, that's a good that's a good name for it. It's in the research and it's uh referred to as the chatty duelists. I think somewhere else they it's, it's known as like the best fencing duel cinematic duel of all time or something. <laughs> Somebody's like like really going for it, which yeah, because it is one of the great uh fencing duels in cinematic history for sure. I don't know if it's the best or number one. I should have saved that for questions and we should have we could do a whole nother podcast rating. Uh, actual sword duels in film history. Uh, That would be a lot of fun, but this has got to be in the top 10, at least for me personally. So we have some great buildup to the scene. We know that we have three criminals. We have, as I mentioned, Vincini played by the great Paul Sean, Fezzik played by Andre the Giant, and Nigo Montoya played by Manny Patinkin. They have joined forces and they have kidnapped the soon-to-be Princess Buttercup. The plan is that they are going to actually kill her and make it look as if though she were murdered by the nation of Gilder. This will start a war. We don't know to what end or why they want to start this war, but regardless, her life is in danger. And we are understanding at this point that Wesley has uh, died at the hands of pirates. And now she is in dire straits. Oh, did you see what I did there, Mark? Yeah, nice. How about that? Now, Vicini, Fezzik, and Inigo are taking their hostage to the Cliffs of Insanity. And all of a sudden, they notice they are being followed by the man in black who has his own boat. His own ship is following them. Well, they reach the Cliffs of Insanity, and it's a sheer cliff. And they have Andre the Giant, Fezzik, basically put on this harness where (laughs) Vicini, Buttercup, and and ego all climb into this harness and poor Fezzik has to carry them up the cliff. He's climbing a rope. There's a rope that's hanging there in order to climb to the top of this cliff. That's the only way to get up. So he's carrying all three of them. Insane. insane. It is insane, but you almost believe that Andre the Giant could do it. Yes. So he's climbing the rope and the man in black has now come ashore and he's following them. And they're like, well, this is no bueno. We can't have the man in black following us. He knows that we have Buttercup hostage now. We have to kill him. They reach the top of the cliff and the man in black is still climbing the rope. Uh, Vizzini looks down and says, okay, I'm going to take Buttercup and Fezzik. We're going to take off. Anigo, you stay back and you kill the man in black. Okay, so now there's your setup. And it's just a lot of fun because there's great buildup because now we have an ego Montoya who's hanging back and he's getting impatient waiting for uh, the man in black to finish climbing the rope. The rope has actually been severed. And now 
the man in black is actually climbing physically climbing rock climbing he's going up the side of the cliff and he's taking his time and so Inigo actually throws the remainder of the rope down and has the man in black climb up and says we are going to duel like gentlemen but before they begin the duel Inigo allows the man in black to rest and this is where you're just like this is great I love I love this setup like they're going to really do this as gentlemen and this is already endearing me to an ego being like, okay, he's actually a good guy. He's just not going to kill him outright. And I love this part because this is where we get a little exposition. We learn about Inigo Montoya's history and we understand that his real quest has not much to do with Buttercup and holding her hostage, but this quest for vengeance. We understand that when he was an 11-year-old boy, his father, Domingo Montoya, had made a sword for this local count whom uh, was not going to pay him for it. And so then he wasn't going to give him the sword. And so this count then murders the sword maker, that being Domingo, who was the father of Inigo. And now Inigo wants to get his revenge and wants to find this man who killed his father. And it's going to be easy to find this man, supposedly, because this man has six, uh, sorry, six fingers on his right hand. So he's looking for the six fingered man. So he tells the man in black this entire story and it's like, oh, great. Okay, cool. He's got this whole quest for vengeance that he's on. And the man in black's like, well, good luck. Uh, I hope works out. And then they begin to duel and it's a fencing duel and it's wonderful. It's just wonderful choreography. The duel ensues. It's like I said, playful. It's funny. It's great use of the space. There's a lot of, there's climbing on rocks and such. And it is called the chatty duelist because there is so much dialogue within the duel, which I always love. It makes it even more exciting. We see like a little bit of a relationship developing and there's a common respect between these duelists and they use fencing terms like Benetti's defense, Capoferro, Tybalt, Agrippa, which I had to look this stuff up. It's great, man. Because they're different fencing maneuvers and strategies uh, that go back to like the 14th and 15th century. We discover that they are evenly matched as duelists and equally uh, respectful of one another. When the masked man notices Inigo Montoya is actually smiling while in the middle of the sword fight. He's like, why are you smiling? Inigo Montoya says, because I know something you do not know. I am left-handed. <laughs> and he switches hands to his better hand, his right hand which is just hilarious. And then he starts getting the best of the man in black. Uh, but then of course the man in black, when he gets quarter says, there's something I ought to tell you. I'm not left-handed either. Switches his hand. And then it becomes more evenly matched. There's just great pauses throughout the fight. When the masked man swings and flips off the horizontal bar, he does like a backflip and landed and picks up his sword, which he had stuck into the ground. Uh, at one point he, manages to get the sword out of Montoya's hand and it goes flying up in the air. And then Inigo Montoya takes like two steps back and catches the sword out of midair and begin, you know, begins the fight again. Again, just great fun choreography. It's not just fun, but it's funny. And then at the end, the masked man gets the best of Inigo Montoya, which is kind of sad because we understand that Inigo Montoya has spent 20 years studying fencing in order to get his vengeance upon the six fingered man and now he's just been bested in, in three minutes and 10 seconds, I think this lasts, by the, the masked man. But 
The masked man will not kill him and instead uses the hilt of a sword and knocks him out. And we're like, oh, thank God Amigo's not dead because he's a great character. So love this scene. There's just a lot of different levels to it. Again, choreography is great. The writing's great. And I look forward to it every time in this movie. I can't I can't wait for it. it makes me oh, yeah. It's a great scene. I had that down too. It's one of my favorite scenes. And man, I don't think he left me much to talk about because I think almost covered everything. But I do love just the attitudes of the two of them going into the fight because Montoya kind of thinks there's no one better than him. So he's definitely going to best the man in black. And the man in black kind of has his laissez-faire attitude where, (laughs) all right, well, I guess I got to fight you and you're going to beat me because you're better than me. But knowing the whole time that he is better than Montoya, he is probably the best swordsman. He's toying with him a little bit. Yeah. But he does respect him because I think in a way Montoya is better than he even anticipated. So I thought that was kind of cool too, that he kind of comes around really fast. Like, oh no, this guy is pretty good. Right. And I understand his plight and his story and what he, what he's trying to accomplish and, and really just find revenge and make sure that he'll hopefully uh, finish off on his quest. The interplay between the two of them is just amazing. Yeah. And just even just the fact where he just like, oh, let's not fight. Just rest. I, I want you to give me your best. Right. You know, you don't, you don't see anything like that. And it's just, it's just cool. That's what's great about it is, you know, you're going to get a good fight. Then there's not, nobody's playing dirty here. There is the gentleman like aspect of it and a politeness to it. And the conversational aspect, they have great chemistry, these two actors in this. And it was obviously well rehearsed and we'll touch on it in the trivia. It flows so nicely. Just a pleasure to watch every time. How about you, man, for favorite moments and scenes? All right. So we'll skip to my second favorite scene, which happens a little bit later because, like I said, Buttercup's been kidnapped and the man in black is after Buttercup. And he's taking out the first obstacle, which is Montoya. Um, He goes to take out the second obstacle, which is Physic. So that leaves him one more, and that is Vizzini. And it's the test of minds, of wits. That's it. The battle of the wits. That was my second favorite scene, man. It has to be. I knew we were going to match on this. Absolutely. Vizzini knows there's no way he's going to get away with the Princess Bride. So... It's kind of cool because he has like this little table set up and he's got like, it's almost like cheese and apples and he's got the goblets there and bread. It's a makeshift picnic on a stone. Yeah. And the man in black approaches and we have buttercup and she's blindfolded and and Cini's holding a a knife right to her throat and basically says, don't take one step further or else um, I will kill her right now. And the man in black is like, all right, what can we do to not, let this happen because he kind of sees he's he's kind of got the upper hand a little bit so Vincini of course says let's do a battle of the wits well man in black says you know since you're so much smarter than me let's do a battle of the wits to the death and whoever wins of course will then walk away with buttercup right so the man in black has the poison that uh, we mentioned and poison is odorless and doesn't give any kind of clue to the poison and they have the two goblets they fill them with wine man in black supposedly puts the poison one of the cups then the iocane powder and he places it a goblet in front of zini and a cup in front of himself and says pick one 
and then we'll drink. One of them has the poison. We'll see who drinks the poison and dies, and the winner will walk away with the lovely buttercup. Right. Pensini goes through this whole thing about what cup he should pick. And it's amazing because right, that's of- the challenge, right? That's the battle of wits is that Vicini has to use his wits to figure out which cup has the poison. Yes. Right. And it's great. Cause I think this is something that I know I've kind of used now where he's like, all right, well, you probably think, I think you put the cup in front of you cause you're going to be brave. So since you know that I know that you would put the cup in front of you, that it can't be in front of the cup in front of you. So it must be the cup in front of me, but it can't be the cup in front of me because if you know that I know that, you know, you put the, and he just keeps going back and forth and the whole time man's like, are you going to choose? Are you going to choose? And he, and he just goes on this big speech for about two or three minutes. And then Vicini says, Oh, look over there. And the man in black turns like, Oh, what is it? And Vicini <laughs> switches the cups. Right. Making it think like, oh, he knows which one's the poison and he's going to switch them and make it think that he's going to choose the wrong one to the men in black. And when the men in black turns around, he's like, have you made your choice? It's like, yes, let us drink. So (laughs) they pick up the goblet, they drink the wine, and then Vizzini starts laughing because he's like, aha, I got you. And men in black's, what do you mean? He's like, I switched cups. And I I had to write this down, Yes, please say it. Because it's. I didn't write it down. I just copied and pasted. There's so many right. words here. And just a credit to Wallace Shawn and his performance of the scene, because he has a crap load of lines in this scene and he carries this scene. So he's laughing and he says, well, that's what's so funny. I switched glasses when your back was turned. Ha ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Ha, 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 ha. That's when he, in mid-laugh, then dies and keels over. Instantly. And then you come to find out that Wesley, Dread Pirate Roberts, poisoned both cups. So there was no way he was going to choose the right one. And he had built up an immunity to the poison, so he would have been okay with either one that he drank which I thought was pretty smart because I, I know watching that first, first time it's like, how the hell are you going to figure this out? And everything he's just saying is like, Oh, that kind of makes sense. I don't know how many times I've used that. Well, you know that I know that you probably know that I know I do that one with my kids a lot. And they're always like, what? It's excellent. Cause I, I have that quote too. So I'll go back to it because it's just the way he reads it when he says uh, things like, well, you've beaten my giant, which means you're extra- exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting your strength to save you. So I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal. So you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible. So I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You know, it's the stuff like that. Oh, I know. That goes on and on and on. And like I said, while Sean kills it, He's great in this. And the fact that it builds and builds and builds and he continues to display his actual intellect and wit. And, you know, we're going, oh, my God, well, which goblet is he going to finally decide upon to drink from only at the end to pull like a grade school prank? Yes. And go, what in the world is that? <laughs> like to pull a distraction <laughs> is genius because he's so smart and then has to revert to a childhood like prank. And then thinks he's being smart by just switching the goblets around. Really, really funny, funny writing. 
But uh, yeah, I think you nailed it, man. That's that's about it. I mean, I was I, I love the scene because I was always fascinated by the Iacane powder. First of all, I thought that was I think the, the setup is cool. Once again, Carrie Elwes's performance is he's just so like suave throughout oh, this, yes. just like he was in the duel previous to this with uh, Inigo. In this scene, again, it's, it seems like he's just so confident and always sort of knows is just one step ahead. Right. He knows a little bit more. But Vizzini just thinks he's so smart, and that's kind of... Yeah, he has like such a matinee idol kind of presence in this movie. Very like much I, so. I know a lot of it compares him to um, Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn. Yeah, yeah, you definitely see a lot of that Oh yeah, in this. Clearly. It's really smart casting. So, great scene, man. It's really funny. All right, so what's your or moment or scene, which I'm sure is going to be the same as mine? Yeah, uh, well, speaking of duels, I've got to go to the end, and it's the duel between Inigo Montoya and Count Rugen. Oh, what a surprise for three for three. <laughs> <laughs> so, and probably everyone listening too is probably like, oh yeah, I had the same three too. Yeah, I mean, it, it was tough. I was like, oh, you could choose. I mean, there's a lot of great scenes in here. Gosh, Miracle Max. That scene's great. For me, it, it has to, it's always this duel at the end when Inigo Montoya completes his quest for vengeance. At this point in the story, so we're getting into the third act here, and uh, we know that Inigo, Fezzik, and a limp-bodied Wesley <laughs> have succeeded in storming Humperdinck's castle. Count Rugen comes storming down the hallway with his guards, and Inigo is finally face-to-face with his nemesis and his destiny to kill Rugen and avenge his father. Uh, Inigo uh, kills Rugen's personal guards with a flourish. I love it, actually. The choreography in this brief sequence when he just kills the guards is great. Oh, yeah. He does a great awesome. thing where he swipes at one guy, the guy goes behind him, and then he stabs him from behind, like he reaches behind him. Yes. And stabs that was a cool the guy. move. Yeah, very cool. So he does that with a flourish, and... It's mano a mano. He's face-to-face alone with Count Rugen, and he delivers his promised line. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. It's just great when he finally gets to say it to him because we know he's been waiting for it. We've been waiting for it. He does it. Count Rugen hesitates, then turns tail and runs the opposite way. Just what a great, great, great reaction. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so not expecting that. Right, you're like, here we go. They're going to fight. Nope. <laughs> the guy just runs away. So Inigo chases him. And here's a great moment. This is one of my favorite moments too, is when Rugen has got a little head start and he runs into a separate room, closes the door behind him and locks it. And Inigo can't get in. And he's, he's so desperate to break down the door because this is his destiny. This oh, yeah. is all that he's wanted in his life. And he is like yelling out for Fezzik to come and help him break down the door. And he's yelling in anguish going, Fezzik! And he's throwing himself against the door. Like you see in so many movies when somebody's trying to break down a door and they hurt themselves doing it. And he keeps leaping up against the door doing nothing at all. He's like bouncing off it like a trampoline. Right. Good call. Yeah. And Fezzik comes to his rescue and Fezzik just (laughs) takes one hand and goes, Knocks the, knocks the hinges off yep right just blows the door down uh, with one hand it's great love that moment again because Mandy Patinkin's performance man he's just crying out in absolute desperation going, Fezzik, go help me 
So Anigo continues to give chase. He chases Rugen into a dining hall when Rugen suddenly spins and throws a knife into Inigo's gut. Oof. Ugh. Oof. I know, right? It's heartbreaking. Actually. It is. Still is watching it today because it's a great, like, all is lost moment because at this same time, it's intercut with Buttercup, who is in her room, and she's about to take her own life with a knife and a separate scene. Now, cutting back to Inigo and Count Rugen, we have uh, Inigo who's collapsing and bleeding from his belly with this knife stuck in him. And of course, Anigo finds his inner drive for vengeance. And he finds his strength within and manages to duel Rogan, excuse me, Tyrone Rugen. And this is great because Rugen really thinks he's gotten the best of him. And now not only does he does Anigo have the knife in his gut, but Rugen stabs him twice in the shoulders. So he's bleeding from three different places in his body. But somehow finds the strength to duel Rugen. And part of finding his inner strength is just he's drawing from this drive. Yeah, it just keeps repeating that line over and it's over the again. the line. He keeps repeating, hello, my name is Anigo Montoya, killed my father, prepare to die. And he just keeps saying it. Of course, Rugen's like, stop saying that. So that line is his driving force, which is awesome. And as an audience member, I remember it as when I was younger, and still today, I'm like, hell yeah, let's go, 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 and ego, do it. And he does. He finally gets the better of Count Rugen, having pushed him up against the table. And the final exchange is wonderful. And I said it out loud when I was watching it today, Bill, because it's such a great moment. He's got Rugen now cornered, and basically Rugen has surrendered. And, and ego says to him, offer me money. Rugen says, yes, power to promise me that. All that I have and more, please offer me anything I ask for. Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. And then he stabs and runs him through. Awesome. Love that last line. That last line, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. He just nails it. Yeah. Such a great delivery. And you're like, oh, fuck yeah. (laughs) Scares the F-bomb. But that's the feeling right there. And I forgot, too, that he gives him the scars that Count Rugen gave him when he was 11. And he mentions so those there's things. So re- you nailed it. There's a really smart thing that they do in the choreography here is that there's a mirror effect because he gets initially, an ego gets stabbed in the stomach with the knife and then receives two blows to his opposite shoulder. So he's bleeding from the shoulders and the gut. And then he throughout the duel, he returns the favor stabbing Rugen in both shoulders, then finally stabbing him in the gut. And also, as you said, delivering the single scars, the slashes across the cheeks, which Rugen had given to him as an 11-year-old boy. So yeah, yeah, it's some great mirror stuff in there. Mandy Patinkin is wonderful in this scene, man. And throughout the movie, as you know, uh, I said in my earliest moments, he's my favorite part of this movie. What I love about his character, and it culminates in the scene is that he's only told one story about his father in the beginning when he monologues to the man in black. We're so completely on board with him, at least I am as as an audience member, and I completely understand his devotion. So the final duel with Rugen resonates not just because we're completely on board with his quest for revenge. It's not because of an overabundance of dialogue. It's more because of Patinkin's passionate performance and his flair. 
I don't know if that makes sense, but yes, he he's just great. Like he don't you just know how much he wants this and needs it, and he gets it. He wins, and so do we. And kudos to Christopher Guest too, because there is yeah. that moment when after he throws the knife in Montego's stomach, and he's just kind of like, oh, all these years, and you failed. Oh, you son of a bitch. It's a great line. He says something like, it's truly evil. He says something like, you have an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. You spent all this time and only, like you said, only to fail. And he goes, how marvelous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because he just is really enjoying the pain that Inigo is experiencing in that moment. Do you have anything else for favorite scenes or moments? Just one moment. I want to give a shout out to Peter Falk, who is famous for his role as Detective Columbo in this just wonderful as the grandfather reading the story and exuding such warmth and care and and sometimes sarcasm and humor with playing off of Fred Savage. And I love when he gets up at the end, when he closes the book finally and gets up and before he leaves, he does that grandfatherly thing that only Peter Falk can do. And I think I may have mentioned this in a podcast earlier, but he does, he pats himself down to make sure he's got everything like his keys and wallet and everything is in its right place as glasses before he leaves. And he does that thing where he's like, Oh, and he's all right. Right. Okay. All right. right." It's just a thing that, Older people tend to do, like you kind of do because I'm hey, starting to do that. God knows, I, as I'm getting older, I forget. I forget a lot of crap. You know, you got to do kind of a mental checklist, or you do an actual audible checklist. Sometimes, I love Peter Fox. So I just, I always love that moment when he gets up to leave at the end. And of course, Fred Savage caps it off by saying, "Hey, uh, Grandpa, you think you'd come back tomorrow and read me that story again?" As you wish. As you wish. That's how you end it, man. Yep. Right. That's how you do that. William Goldman, man. Uh, Did you have any other moments or scenes? No. All right. So you wanted to talk a little bit about the music. Just a little bit, uh, because as I mentioned earlier, the score is wonderful by Mark Knopfler. We had mentioned in a previous podcast, musical artists that we know mostly from the rock genre, like being part of a rock band, making that transition to doing film scores. And because we were talking about Queen, particular in particular and then i had jumped to like more present day talking about trent reznor and atticus ross and people like johnny Greenwood. but i mean it you know then we mentioned danny elfman and i'm remiss to if i don't say shout out to one of my all-time favorites han zimmer who was a keyboardist he was part of the band uh the buggles back in the day i mean that's right i forgot about that so here we have mark knopfler who was a lead singer guitarist keyboardist for uh dire straits yeah, money for nothing. And chicks for free. Yep. So here we are, another rock and roll guy. He does a brilliant score. And uh, shout out to Willie DeVille, who sings Storybook Love. That song, man, that music is arranged by Mark Knopfler, but I believe it's Willie DeVille that sings the song. Correct. And I always, for some reason, thought it was Knopfler. So I'm glad I've done my research here, and now I can give a shout out to Willie DeVille. But yeah, that song always stays with me. Just really, when I hear that the the guitar intro kind of and the the main, it's like it is the main theme, very romantic. So yeah, just shout out to these musicians. 
Yeah, and the soundtrack was a Grammy nominee for Best Album of Original Instrumental Background Score Written for a Motion Picture. Thanks for that. Hey, no problem. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Now back to our show. All right, so let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it does not fall under Swiss cheese, we just end up filing a complaint with the complaint department. So what do we have for Swiss cheese or complaints? Here's a question for you. Okay. This might be a hot take. Is Wesley, in a couple of moments in this, is he a little dickish? Is he a little bit of a pompous ass? In just a few moments, did you pick up on that at all? I always just found him to be very confident, but it was always against his enemies. I don't know. There was a couple of moments when, like, we understand that he's He's very self-assured. Right. When he's playing the role of Dread Pirate Roberts, and he's kind of manhandling Buttercup, and we understand that he's really Wesley underneath. He's almost interrogating her in a kind of a roundabout way as to why she decided to marry Prince Humperdinck so quickly after Wesley had supposedly vanished and died. And he just, I don't, there's a couple of moments where I'm like, oh, is he kind of getting a little over, a little over the top here? There's one moment, I think it's when he's like on the bridge with Fezzik and Inigo Montoya, and they're basically saving him and he comes to, he's been revived. They give him the basic, like the chocolate pill. Yes. And he comes to, he lets him have it a little bit. Like, like, don't you have anything? I, I, it's, I should have more to back this up. I just wanted to, if you sensed anything where it was like, ah, he's a little bit, a little bit of a prick here in a couple Couple yeah. of moments. I'll give you the when he first rescues Buttercup and right before she finds out. Yeah, he is kind of. I don't know. It's not arrogant. It, I, it's totally nitpicky. Like, I, I just was, I, I thought it would be a hot take. It doesn't really play, though. He's right. still, he's still very much the hero, and Carrie Ellis is, is wonderful. He really plays it quite perfectly throughout. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because he's just, he's so confident for the most part. I don't know. Maybe I'm just dealing with my own insecurities. I don't know. Okay. All right. So I've got some complaints, though. Did you have any uh, Swiss cheese or do you want to move into some complaints? I don't know if it's a complaint, but so in the beginning of the movie, okay, we meet Buttercup and the stable boy. Is that it? Did no one else live there? And how did this range come about? I was thinking the exact same thing because when I, before I even did the rewatch today, I was going, how does this start again? I know he's like a farmhand and she has the farm, but is she already royalty or whose land is it? Is it her parents? How does she live on this farm? What's the situation? What's her living situation? Who is she? And she just has this farm. (laughs) Right. 
That's it. And she has her stable boy, Wesley. That's it. Yeah. Did she hire him? Did yeah. Her parents I, hire him before. We don't passed? even. I don't know if she has parents or they're. Or, well, obviously she has parents, but they're not in right. the movie. Like they're not mentioned. No. We're just dropped right into the middle of a situation where she just happens to be a landowner of some sort. We don't know how she got all of the land in the farm, but she runs the place. Right. Which would be kind of surprising at that kind of time that a, a woman would own land, unfortunately. So I, I, that's why I found it kind of unusual. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad you brought that up because I was like, wait, oh, she just lives here by herself with the farm boy, I guess. All right. Here's a question. Yes. If Inigo Montoya's father, Domingo, had made a special sword for Count Rugen back in the day. Mm -hmm. And then Count Rugen comes to Domingo and says, you know what? I'm not going to pay you the full amount for this sword. Just give it to me. And then Domingo decides not to give Rugen the sword. Thus, Rugen kills Domingo. Why doesn't Rugen just take the sword from him after killing him? How did Inigo manage to keep the sword? That's my question. Yeah, I couldn't figure that out either. Because I was, because it's, uh, I love that sword. It's, it's exquisite. Yeah. It's one of the, like, I would love that prop and like, oh, have definitely. that that sword on my wall. It's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was, I was just like, because when Inigo's telling the story, I'm like, oh, I thought, like, I was misremembering as if maybe Inigo would tell us how he came to have the sword. Like, why didn't Rugen say, you know what? I know, hey, Domingo, you made a sword for me. I'm not going to pay you for it. I'm going to kill you and just take it. But he didn't. He just killed Domingo and left. And then Nigo ended up with the sword, his father's sword that he made. Yeah, I think knowing Rugen's, this, he probably just left the insult to injury. He killed your dad, and here's the sword that I used. And uh, why don't you keep it as a memento? All right. All right. What else you got? All right, so when the man in black, Wesley, Dread Pirate Roberts, is climbing up the wall after the rope gets cut? Yes. Okay. Why not, instead of having Inigo wait for him, why don't you ask Fezzik to like throw something down at the man in black and just knock him off the side of the cliff? Oh, yeah, sure. We, we know yeah, he's got easier pretty good way aim. to take him out. Yeah. Because he could have killed him with the rock when they wrestled. Right. And he tells him that. He's like, I could have crushed you right then, but that's not very gentlemanly. Yeah. Good, yep. done right good point. Just good guys playing bad roles. Right. Yeah. You could have just, yeah. Taken him out right then and there. He was in a really a bad spot. Yeah. He was very vulnerable. Exactly. So why does Humperdinck want to start a war with Gilder? Is it simply a re- just he needs a reason to start a war t- in order to fight them and take over their land? That was funny. That was actually my additional thoughts questions. Why you thought oh, okay. he was doing that? Because it just seemed like he just wanted to fight just to fight. When we when we know that Vicini is trying to make or he's attempting to make Buttercup's murder look as if though Gilder had killed her, thus starting a war between Gilder and Florin. Well, what's the long game here? Why do they want to go to war? Yeah, which is kind of weird because, so why is Humperdick always so upset that she's not in love with him when he has two different plans in place to have her killed? Right, yeah. 
It's like, yeah, I don't care. It's just a, like an ego thing. I got, here's a good one though. Supposedly Count Rugen had killed Anigo's father when Anigo was only 11 years old. He should look much older than Anigo. Right. That's what I was trying to figure out too. I was like, oh, okay. How old? So it's like, oh, maybe they're 10 years apart, 15 years apart. Right. And uh, to step on the trivia a little bit, in go. fact, Christopher Guest is only four years older than Manny yeah. Katigan. So they're just too close in age for that to be realistic. But yeah, something you can easily overlook. Montoya's 31. So I would think that Rugen was supposed to be like, yeah, 10 to 20 years older. Yeah. Okay. Here, so, go for it, please. Yeah. yeah so during the uh, sword fight scene, when Wesley, Man in Black, Dread Pirate Roberts throws his sword to do the parallel bar leap. Right. Montoya, just take a sword. Just grab. He's too oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I got two swords. Just grab it, man. Right. But then it's I was wondering same. if it was fencing code or sword fighting code not to do that. Right. You're like, oh, nope. Because you always just see to allow him to do this maneuver first. See what happens. Yes. Give him a nine on the dismount. Because you always see that too. They always seem to kick it away. They never seem to pick it up and use it. Right. Yeah. Like it's a written rule or code. Yeah. That they abide by. I like it. Okay. So towards, this is actually near the very, very end. Okay. Wesley has succeeded in bluffing Humperdinck and has Buttercup tie Humperdinck to a chair. Okay. Now, Inigo enters after having killed uh, Count Rugen. So they've won the day. Now, if all 60 guards had fled the castle gate at the sight and sounds of the ominous and fiery visage of Dread Pirate Roberts, and Inigo has dispatched, obviously, Count Rugen and his, all his guards, do they have to jump from the window at the end? Can't they walk out the front door? Or... If not, then that we're meant to assume that there are more guards, but where the hell are they? That's a good question. I didn't think about that. Because I'm like, wait, didn't you guys, you guys won, right? Everybody, all the bad guys are gone. Don't want to make maybe not risk jumping from the five-story high window. <laughs> which, which is funny because that goes into my, my final complaint. Awesome, yeah. Which was, hey, Buttercup, before you jump out the window, make sure the person down there is ready to catch you. She just jumps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that could have been a very tragic ending to the movie. <laughs> and I always love the timing when Anigo and Wesley are having a little convo there then after Buttercup has already jumped out. And then Wesley jumps, and then Anigo like, jumps almost right after him. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, Fezzik's really got his hands full. Yeah. He better have put Wesley down really fast in order to catch his buddy Anigo. Otherwise, Anigo's a pancake. Yep. It's funny how we think, right? We just get so nitpicky with that crap. Oh, I know. That's what you do. And you, I, I've thought that for a long time. Like, oh, wait, you got to wait, dude. Wesley just jumped. Give Fezzik a second, man. Do you think the, the plan to get in the castle, do you think they told Fezzik they were going to set him on fire? <laughs> it's not like a play, but I'm just kind of asking just thinking about because I, I don't know if I'd be down for that. If that yeah. That's a shit job, man. Fezzik, yeah. It's just like, oh, man, see, this is the crap I got to do just because I'm a huge dude, you know? But, uh, yeah, the fire thing was, yeah. That's kind of scary. It's like, wow. That's getting all up in his face. Yeah. 
It's like, that's a team player right there. You just keep saying the line over and over again while you're on fire. Right. I'd be like, get some water buckets. Yeah, no kidding, man. That's that's just really dangerous. You're putting them really Throw, bad Throwing out there. a couple words that you really shouldn't be saying. <laughs> Fuck, gonna, this is hot. Yeah, I was getting nervous. I was getting nervous. I'm like, I've seen this so many times. I was getting nervous for him. Oh, for sure. I am the like, I didn't pirate Robert. <laughs> uh, you got any other complaints? Uh, just go back to that. See, they're jumping out the window at the end. Right before that, good old Fezzik shows up with four white horses. He's like, hey, I came across these horses. Thought they would come, you know, come into use here. And Inigo looks down at him and goes, Fezzik, you did something right. And I'm like, don't be an asshole. Has Fezzik not done something right previous to this? I think he's done a lot of right stuff. I I'm think like, he has done Where did that right. come from? Why are you saying that as if Fezzik does everything wrong? All the time, just to be like, "Hey, Fezzik, you did something right." Was he? Is it more like, like you did a really good job? Like, good on you, man. Yeah, let's, or, but let's I played that way. Okay, because I heard it more like, "Man, you're a fuck up," but you finally did something right. Hey, Anigo, take it easy. Fezzik saved your ass a few times. I think yes. in this movie sobered him up. Right. That's all I got, man. Okay. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. So I think we might have the same one. Yeah, we might. Go ahead, though. All right, man. I chose a lovely lady that, I don't believe to a lot of people would fall into this category, but she falls in this category for me. And that is Carol Kane, who plays Valerie, Miracle Max's wife. Carol Kane, wonderful character actress, has that recognizable voice, man. And that's what it does it oh, for yeah. me. Like I look at her and I she's under a lot of heavy makeup in this to make her look elderly. But you immediately recognize the voice and I can see her actual face because I know I've seen her in many, many things, but couldn't really name anything off the top of my head. So that's why I think of her as like a, Hey, it's that actor because she's done a ton of work. Uh, I think she's still working. Right. Oh yeah. And uh, she's wonderful. So I, you know, looking at her filmography, I mean, she has a role in dog day afternoon. She's in Annie Hall, the Muppet movie, When a Stranger Calls. Oh, yeah. She was, a you know, uh, in 27 episodes, she was a regular on Taxi, which is where I know I I'm, have had to have seen her because my grandpa was a big fan mm-hmm. of Taxi, and I've watched a bunch of those episodes. She was in Ishtar, Licensed to Drive, Scrooged, Joe versus the Volcano. I know I've seen her in that. My Blue Heaven. Yeah. So... Adam's family values. So anyway, I just want to give a shout out to her because uh, she's great. And I just, I'm like, why do I know her? And from what specifically is it that I'm associating her with? Like what movie? So maybe you can uh, help me with that. For me, it would her most known role would probably be, of course, when stranger calls, but as the ghost of Christmas present and Scrooged. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I know she was really big time build in that one and okay. um she had a pretty good dynamic with bill murray 
But um, I'll be honest, the reason I picked her myself is because when I was looking through her credits, there was a movie on that list that made my uh, jaw drop because I this is a movie I completely forgot about. And I remember watching it a ton of times on HBO and the movie's called Pandemonium. Okay. And it came out in 1982. And I don't even think I never knew what the name of the movie was at the time. It was just something that was on. I would watch it all the time. So all right, Jason, listen to this cast. So you have Tom Smothers of the Smothers Brothers. Yeah. Phil Hartman, Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, Judd Reinhold with super bleach blonde hair, uh, Eileen uh, Brennan from uh, Private Benjamin, Deborah Lee Scott, who was in the Police Academy series, David L. Lander, who was uh, Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, sure. And Mark McClure from the Superman movies. And of course, Carol Kane, and she played like this Carrie from Stephen King's Carrie character. So the movie is basically if the creators of Airplane got stoned with National Lampoon and came Uh up with a horror spoof, this is what this movie was. And it's about a serial killer murdering cheerleaders at a cheerleading camp school. It's totally tacky film. Right. I have to watch this movie again. I probably have not seen this movie in 30 years. And I had to watch the trailer and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I remember seeing this, but don't really remember anything about the movie. But every every scene, I was like, oh, my God, I do remember this. And they would get killed in all these like crazy. There's like this one cheerleader that died getting her teeth brushed to death. <laughs> it's just stupid, silly movie. And I, I had to see if it was even available on streaming and it's not. But once I get my hands on this, I have to watch it again just to see if it is as bad as I think it's going to be or just to see how much I can remember of it. So I was just excited. I, I think that's the one thing I love about doing this podcast now is just going back to these movies I haven't seen forever and then finding movies I forgot I had even seen. And this is one of them, Pandemonium. Yeah, it's just a horror spoof. It's like literally like 80 three minutes long i mean it's not a movie you would ever do for this show but just seeing who was in it was crazy and there's a whole bunch of other yeah, it's a whole actors in it yeah that i haven't even mentioned Pandemonium. yeah but yes i think she's like the main character in it and she has like this carry like abilities right and um uh, eileen brennan plays her overbearing mom in it gotta remember that one that's great so once again man that's like what three out of the last five shows we've had the same hey it's that actor we were going on a good streak where we had we were always finding someone different. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's been a couple times recently. But that's okay. All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia? And there's so much facts and trivia about the Princess Bride. Right. Rob Reiner had been enamored with Goldman's book ever since it was given to him as a gift from Carl Reiner, his father. Uh, so he wanted to make the film adaptation after... Uh, the success of This Is Spinal Tap in 1984. And then, uh, long story short, uh, Rob Reiner finally, uh, well, it was like in development hell, basically. And eventually, uh, Rob Reiner found success by gaining financial support from Norman Lear, whom he knew from All in the Family, which he was an actor on, and who had uh, funded the production of This Is a Spinal Tap. So uh, Rob Reiner then worked closely with William Goldman to adapt the book for the screenplay. I found this pretty cool because you don't hear about this a lot. So supposedly 
Carrie Elwes wrote a book about the making of the movie called As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. And it was a New York Times bestseller. Awesome. And it is his account of the making of the film filled with never-before-told stories, exclusive photographs, and interviews with co-stars Robin Wright, Wallace Shawn, Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest, Mandy Patinkin, William Goldman, Norman Lear, and Rob Reiner. It's like, I got a copy of this now. It's so yeah, rare no that you, you hear about an actor writing about his experience. It's always someone else that kind of writes it. So to get it from the actor's perspective, I thought the only other actor I could think of offhand was Bruce Campbell. I was just going to say, right? Yeah. If chins could kill. Yes. Talking about the Evil Dead movies, you know, you look online, you see all these interviews and just the whole cast, just how much they love, loved making that film. It was more fun making it than what you see on screen. And that's what you always hear them talk about that. So, and just for someone to actually write about it, I thought was cool. Yeah, that's what it's all about. From the little of the behind the scenes that I actually watched, you could get a sense of that. And I did catch an interview as well. You sense the camaraderie, but everything came together. It truly seemed to be magical. And it's wonderful. That's, that's why we do it, ladies and gentlemen, right? I mean, to do something that you love with the people that you love uh, with something like that comes together. The filmmaking process really does take on a magical quality and it's pure fun. So... It's cool, like you said, that Carrie Elwes wrote that book and you get it from the actress perspective, but just about that movie too, not just right. Not he's not writing about multiple films he had worked on. He's like, I know, I'm I'm gonna zone in and, and focus on this one movie that was right. Yeah, it's not like really an special. autobiography where they do a chapter, it's a whole book cover to cover, just about the making of the movie and everything you went on from casting and to yeah. filming itself. So that's something I definitely gotta pick up now too. Well, speaking of casting. If you want to go way back, before Rob Reiner became the director of this, back in the 70s, William Goldman had actually sold the rights to this story, and then he actually bought the rights back. But when he was originally shopping his novel around to be uh, adapted to film, his first choice for the role of Fezzik was Andre the Giant. But Andre the Giant's wrestling schedule left him unavailable for filming, and Goldman's second choice was none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at the time, this early 70s, was almost unknown as an actor. But then by the time The Prince's Bride was actually greenlit and it was taken over, you know, Robert Reiner was helming the project, etc. Schwarzenegger was a major film star, as we well know, and the studio could not afford him. Yeah, he actually would have been a good choice. I think so too. But then, and then Andre the Giant's schedule, it had opened up and uh he was the first choice initially and then does end up playing the role Fezzik. So I always kind of find this cool. So the art director uh, Richard Holland was talking about the the machine was actually not built originally for the Princess Bride. It was actually built for the James Bond movie, Never Say Never Again. The device worked a little bit differently. It worked on the principle of like sand weights instead of water. Uh, but they didn't want to use it. And somehow he then repurposed it for The Princess Bride. I love that. You build props. The props are being used for other films. It's something you rarely... Like, oh, yeah, I could use that for something. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, I, yeah, because I cool. guess the Pit of Despair is different from the book from what I read. 
and it's it's something else in the book, but it just right. like financially unattainable to do it for the movie. It would have cost way too much. So they came up with a pit of despair. And this contraption just worked perfectly with that new setting. That's cool stuff, man. Yeah, like we had said earlier, there are some differences between the movie and the actual book. As it usually is. Right. As there has to be. There are certain, in this case, like financial constraints. But one other scene that was different was there are no screeching eels in the book. Oh, yeah. It's sharks. Right. There's sharks in the water. And I believe Vin- Vicini is tossed over like a cup of blood over to the, over to the overboard and uh, in order to attract the sharks somehow. But regardless, they get her out of the water. Or she doesn't go in. She doesn't jump into the water as a result. I don't know what I forget now. But uh, yeah, no screeching eels. But I love the screeching eels, actually. Yeah. In this. I think they're pretty creepy. That was a, another initial thought, which I actually did not mention. Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patinkin learned to fence both left and right-handed for the film and performed the scenes themselves outside of two somersaults, which were performed by stunt doubles. They did train for months with Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson, who between them had been in the Olympics, worked on Bond, Lord of the Rings, Raiders Lost Ark, and Star Wars films, and had coached Errol Flynn and Burt Lancaster. That's a nice little resume right there. That's pretty good. They knew what they were doing when it came to the fight choreography. Guys, right, so I had to find this out because in the very beginning of the film, the grandson's playing a video game. Oh, right. Of course. I was like, yeah. yeah. I didn't know Go what it, it was. So the um, the game is called Hardball, and it was produced by Accolade in 1985, and it was widely available on the Commodore 64 computer system. Because I was like, that looks a little too advanced for Nintendo. I right. Like, I got to find out what that game was. I'm glad you cleared that up. Yes, I know everyone was writing in wondering if we'd ever answer that question. <laughs> so as we alluded to earlier, Andre the Giant had undergone major back surgery prior to filming. And despite his great size and strength, he could not support the weight of Elwes during their fight scene or Robin Wright uh, for a scene near the end of the film. Uh, for the wrestling scene, when Elwes is hanging on Andre's back, he was actually walking on a series of ramps below the camera during close-ups. Uh, for the wide shots, a stunt double took the place of Andre. When he's apparently carrying Robin Wright, she was actually uh, suspended by cables to help him out. It's a shame. The big guy had some health issues there. Oh, big time. Um, so the film uh, in 2016 was inducted into the National Film Registry, preserved for future generations. That's always uh, good. I almost think of this movie as like the modern day Wizard of Oz. And I wish, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, every year the Wizard of Oz would come on TV and it'd be a big right. event. And I was like, the Princess Bride should be getting that kind of treatment. Oh, no doubt. Should I agree. The NBC movie of the week or CBS. Make movie it a week. holiday movie. Yes. Pick a holiday. Show it every year on that holiday. So this is recent. In June 2020, a fan-made recreation of the Princess Bride was released on Quibi, short-lived Quibi, called home movie, The Princess Bride. And it was produced by Jason Reitman during the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine with the help of an ensemble cast who filmed themselves recreating various scenes at their homes to raise money for the World Central Kitchen charity. Reitman received backing from Jeffrey Katzenberg for the project and as well as the rights to stream the film on his Quibi service. So 
the fan-made film also had approval from Norman Lear and the estate of William Goldman, who has now passed. Uh, and uh, Mark Knopfler permitted the use of his music. So Rob Reiner also approved of the project, even briefly stepping in to play the role of the grandfather. It also features the final performance of Carl Reiner uh, playing the grandfather in the last scene to his own son, Rob Reiner. The film was dedicated to Carl Reiner's memory as he died days later. Wow. I'm glad you brought that up because I got to cancel my Quibi subscription. Thanks. <laughs> so, you know, we always talk about could this be me, you know, remade? Should it be rebooted? Is it going to be remade? Is there talk of a remake or a sequel, etc.? And in, a, I guess, a September 2019 biographical article on Norman Lear in Variety, Sony Pictures Entertainment CEO Tony Vinciquera, speaking of Lear's works and interest in remaking them, stated, very famous people whose names I won't use, but they want to redo The Princess Bride. Well, thankfully, the reaction to this via social media was very negative, and uh, fans of the film asserting that the remake would be a bad idea. Now, Kerry Elwes himself, I guess, paraphrased the film saying, there's a shortage of perfect movies in this world. It would be a pity to damage this one. And Jamie Lee Curtis, who I guess Christopher Guest's wife. Yes. Did you? Yeah, I always forget that. That's yeah. so weird. Uh, had stated, there is only one The Princess Bride, and it's William Goldman and Reiners. Hell yeah. Agreed. Don't touch it. Do not. Mandy Patinkin has said that the role of Inigo Matoya is his personal favorite over the course of his entire career. Another shout out to Mandy Patinkin. I actually got to see him in a one-man show. Oh, really? The first year I moved out here to LA, or within the first couple of years. Yeah. He was brilliant. Song and dance man. Beautiful singer. And he was doing like monologues, et cetera. Yeah, he's just a wonderfully talented, talented dude. Uh, And then, I, you know, the strange thing about Mandy Patinkin is I don't, think I really recognized him from this. I think when I started doing research on him was after Alien Nation. Oh, yeah. Because I was like, who's the guy be, be, you know, beneath the makeup? Yes. And then, of course, he goes on to do Chicago Hope. And I actually loved him on Criminal Minds. I actually followed the show. And then when he left the show, I stopped watching the show. But uh, he has said that uh, it wasn't, I guess, a 2012 interview in New York Magazine. That is most famous line. Of course, hello, my name is Amigo Montoya, et cetera. Uh, it gets quoted back to him by at least two or three strangers strangers uh, every day of his life. And he loves it, supposedly. Awesome. All right, that's all I got for... Okay, well, I'm going to cap it off with this then, my friend Bill Bant. There really was a Dread Pirate Roberts. Bartholomew Roberts, also known as Black Bart, who operated in the Caribbean in the early 18th century. He is reckoned by many to have been the most successful pirate of all time. Nice. All right. So that leads us to box office. So The Princess Bride was released on September 25th, 1987 in a handful of theaters and in wide release on October 9th, 1987. On an estimated budget of $16 million, it grossed $30.8 million domestically. Upon wide release, it debuted at number three at the box office and stayed in the top 10 for just another four weeks. It placed no higher than number three at the box office and was the 38th highest domestically grossing movie of 1987 between Can't Buy Me Love, 
which we've done on our pod. Nice. And Harry and the Henderson. All right. Uh, so moving on to reviews. When growing up in the 80s, we would watch at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of The Princess Bride was unanimous. Two thumbs up. Roger said the movie was a strange combination of satire, romance, and swashbuckling special effects, and somehow it works on all those levels. It was one of the funniest and charming movies he had seen in a long time. Gene applauded the funny script and the amazing supporting cast, a charming film for both adults and kids. And both Gene and Roger were surprised to find out that Miracle Max was played by Billy Crystal. They were surprised? Yeah. Oh, like they were surprised to see him or they were surprised that it was him under the makeup? They didn't know it was him, they said initially, until they saw the credits. Because I think he's, it's still. Yeah, I think you can tell right away. That's just me. What do those guys know? Yeah. Idiots. Morons. All right. So let's move on to additional thoughts and questions. What are some of our additional thoughts and questions about the Princess Bride? I love that you said morons because that just reminded me of one of Wallace Shawn's last. Ever heard of Aristotle, Socrates? Morons. Yes. <laughs> Something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Anyway, uh, I really didn't have a lot as far as uh, additional thoughts outside of what I already stated that I want Inigo Montoya's sword. It is exquisite. And that I need to buy this book ASAP. I think there's different versions of it now that have been released. I would like to actually see the, or like have a, a copy of the original edition mm-hmm. of this. Uh, but uh I kind of want to see all the versions now of this book. I just, I, I love the idea of it. The, the story within the story, very creative stuff. You know, does this have the potential for spinoffs? Cause I love the lore of dread pirate Roberts, how he hands down the title. It's oh, been yeah. handed down over the years and that it kind of leaves us wondering at the end of this film, Will Inigo Montoya take up the mantle? Because Wesley says, hey, you'd make a great Dread Pirate Roberts. And is that something we would want to see? Or I don't know. I think it'd kind of be cool. Like we had mentioned, I think with something else, when it comes to reboots or spinoffs, sometimes the best solution is to not try to recapture the original idea product or recast it with the same roles with different actors, but just do take one small piece of the original story and extrapolate upon that, keeping it within the same world and or universe. So I don't know if they could do something with that, but I don't know if you had any thoughts regarding something else they could do with this material. Uh, Maybe it has to be like a a Fezzik and Montoya adventures or something. Oh yeah. But if he becomes the dread pirate Roberts, I could take Fezzik with him. Yeah. I don't know. I think that'd be hard for a show. It'd have to be uh, like a movie. Well, you can chew on that for a while. How about the just absolutely lovely Robin Wright, who has aged so gracefully. Uh, She still looks wonderful in my opinion. And what are, uh, do you have a favorite film of hers? What's your favorite work by Robin Wright. Oh, I, I think I've mentioned this before. The one movie, uh, every time she was on screen, she literally took my breath away. And it's not a popular movie, but I don't know. I just loved her. It was Toys. I loved her. Oh, in toys. yeah. Loved her in Toys. Sure. Good call. 
You know, it's tough, man. And she's great, actually, in the Wonder Woman films. Mm-hmm. I think she's also in Justice League, too. But uh, regardless, yeah, always been a fan. She was great in Blade Runner 2049. Yes. Wonderful on House of Cards. Just, like, awesome. Just powerhouse. Well, you know, it's a TV show. I didn't watch it. Right. <laughs> Just for our listeners out there, I don't know if you're aware, but Bill Bant doesn't watch TV. That's not true. He watches television. He, he'll watch the actual screen. He just doesn't watch television shows on the TV screen, only movies. Correct. Robin Wright, for me, Unbreakable. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, another film I adore her in is my, I mentioned this on three films in a podcast, I think is, a, is one of the hidden gems, I believe. Yes. State of Grace. Yeah, I was waiting for that to come. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good call of Unbreakable. I can't believe I didn't mention that one. Love that one. So, Jason. Bill. Did you know that Mel Smith, who plays the albino, uh-huh. directed a little movie called Radioland Murders, which was written by George Lucas? What? Yes. Really? Yes. And did you know that movie was a huge <laughs> flop? <laughs> I was aware of that. Grossing less than $2 million at the box office? Oh, Mel, I'm sorry, man. And did you know I actually saw that movie opening night on a date? I didn't know that. I'm not surprised by it, but I did not know that. And my date actually liked the movie. Oh. Yeah, I did not. And that's when you knew. <laughs> and that was the last time I saw her and the movie. <laughs> it all makes sense. I've never seen it. I've actually never seen it. I've oh. seen, I think I've seen bits, but I just remembered that it was so widely panned and obviously did not do well i don't i don't recall it anybody saying it was the worst movie of all time by any no, means no, no, but no. it just didn't do well and it the subject matter held no interest for me so i never watched it they make kind of a big deal that mel smith is in this movie and i was like well what else has he done i don't really know him and then when i saw he directed i almost had a quadruple check because i'm like that can't be true and sure enough, I saw a picture with him and George Lucas on the set of Radio Land Murders. So I was like, okay, that is definitely him. So $11 of the one point, I think seven it ended up making came from me. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's great. Oh, so just lines that we did not say that I just wanted to repeat. Please. Was, yeah, do it. Uh, so from Vizzini, you know, he didn't fall. Inconceivable. And then Montoya <laughs> comes back with, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah. That always classic. Me up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then when uh, Wesley comes back from the dead and says, why won't my arms move? And Fessick replies, you've been mostly dead all day. I just thought that just makes me <laughs> <laughs> just a simple explanation. So just wanted to throw those two in there. That's a great one. There's a, there's a lot of, I mean, there, well, gosh, oh, yeah. there's so, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely loaded. It's so brilliantly written. And it's probably because William Goldman got to write the actual screenplay of his own book. There's one bittersweet line that the man in black, as he's known at this point in the movie, says to Buttercup, life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. That man speaks the truth. Love that line. Not one of the funnier lines in the movie. But no, not still. at all. But <laughs> kind of poignant, unfortunately. 
Hey, we didn't mention Chris Sarandon, by the way, as Humperdinck. Oh, I know. We did not. His delivery is spot on. I probably one of the unsung heroes in this. Just excellent. Yeah. He's so, he's villainous. He's conniving and uh, just, but he's funny because he kind of a wuss. He's weak and such a great moment at the end when Wesley bluffs him. There's a great line. I always remember that when Wesley just points the sword at him. Put down your sword. And Sarandon just drops the sword, sits. And you see Chris Sarandon does this thing where he just immediately like swoops up his his uh like his robe oh, yeah. and then sits right down in the chair, like, yep, I'll do whatever you want me to do. You yeah. got me. It's just a great moment. Chris Sarandon, not Michael Nuri. Nope. Chris Sarandon from Fright Night. And I mean, he's great. Yeah. And all the stuff with the tracking, how he kind of explains everything that does happen, I thought was kind of cool. I mean, William Defoe ends up topping him in the Boondock Saints, but I think up to that point, he definitely nailed the whole tracking and then re-explaining everything. Yes, there was a sword fight. They were evenly matched. And just how he just knows everything just by looking at the clues, exactly what had happened before. Oh, as, so a, thought, oh, as a tracker. I yes, the tracker, I yes. Saying, yes, when he's tracking the steps of the man in black and the, yeah, Vicini and everybody. Yeah, uh, I thought those scenes Yeah, Humberdick. Yeah, he's great. I think his, yeah, his line reading is, is quite uh, sublime as well. So that's all I got, man. Did you have any other uh, comments, questions? No, I think we kind of covered everything uh, going through the movie. So I think we're good. So let's, uh, God, let's move on to recommendations. All right. Gee. If we have to. I guess. Should we? I don't know. Do we recommend this? Not only do I recommend it, Bill Bant, but it is a must see. It's a fantasy romantic comedy that hits all the right notes with an ensemble cast that is flawless. It's a storybook story about finding and fighting or true love. No, he said to blave. (laughs) (laughs) To quote the film, when the grandson is asking about the book and he says to his grandfather, has it got any sports in it? Grandpa replies, are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. What more could you ask for? On its face, this movie is about storytelling and it makes you fall in love with the power of storytelling. I recommend it. Yeah, I think this is the first movie that we've done that I was bummed that I didn't make time to watch this with my kids. Yeah, yeah. Just because of my schedule being so crazy. I was like, oh, if I just had time to sit my kids down, with the three of us watch it together just to get their reactions to this because they have not seen it yet. But yeah, like I said, I, I put this up there with Wizard of Oz. This should be a... Every year they should have this on TV or you should just break it out and just watch it. I laugh every time. I get chills every time. You just quote along with it. And even even watching it again, I was picking up some stuff for the for the first time, which is just great. And that's oh, this is the beauty of watching a movie like this. And uh, and just like you said, if you have not seen it, as soon as this podcast is over, go stream it, go buy it, whatever you got to do. Watch it. It should be in the collection. Yes. It should be in your home video library for sure. And well said about, you know, sharing it with your kids because it, this is the type of movie that needs to be a shared experience as well. 
to be shared with the younger generation and to be passed down. So it can be a very special thing and a bonding experience. Yeah. So I'd love to see if it got them like it got me. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, dad, you're making us watch this movie. And then, oh, when can we watch this again? Yeah. Cause I thought about it today. I was like, oh, I should, I need to watch this with my niece and nephew. You know, you want to just kind of pass it along. Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be discussing the 1989 comedy The Burbs, starring Tom Hanks, Rick Dukeman, and Carrie Fisher. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcasts at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast. Or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Have fun storming the castle. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Okay, I fucked this all up. Can I start over?